everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning back into our series on Revelation. Today is chapter 16, the seven bowls of wrath. I'm going to tell you, this has been one of the hardest ones to record a podcast for. So (laughs) there must be something really important in here that um, needs to be said that maybe the enemy doesn't want said. So I am trying to muscle through this episode But today, we have a lot of scripture references to cover. Too many, I think, just to list out in the beginning, So, like we've been trying to do. So if you don't mind, if you can just grab a pen and a paper and jot them down as we go, that'd be great. Because today, we are going to be addressing the topic of God's wrath. So get comfy, buckle up, do whatever you need to do, because I think we're going to go a little long today, but it is super, super important. And again, I can tell it's important because I've been having so much trouble. Now, in the last episode, I made mention of the fact that the order of events from Revelation 6 to 16, that they are definitely something people are not fully certain of, that order. We do know the judgments, those three sets of seven judgments, we know they increase in frequency and intensity and that they accurately follow each other. But when it all takes place, in the midst of tribulation is still the mystery. We don't know what the timing of that is. There are assumptions, but that's all they are. So it is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to fit all the predicted events into a coherent pattern. And so, for instance, what you'll notice is that after the bowls of wrath are poured out, to me at least, it appears that everyone and everything is destroyed. But then in the upcoming chapters of 17, 18, and 19, We're dealing with the harlot named Mystery Babylon and then God calling to his people to come out of her and not share in her sins. And then we also go into the battle of Armageddon. And I think to myself, well, how is is that possible? Nothing's left. So again, keep in mind, the order is not the primary thrust in this section from 6 to 16. We need to be far more concerned with what will happen than with when things will happen. And let's keep in mind the words of Jesus from Matthew 24, his end times discourse, when he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. That's what we look for. We just keep following the signs, friends. And so until he wants to reveal things such as timing, we keep busy doing the work of the Lord, watching and praying as he commanded, no matter how hard it gets. So today... We are talking about the seven bowls of wrath, but I'm actually going to talk about about those at the end because I think we need to tackle the topic of God's wrath first because many of us struggle with it. And so it's really important that we try to bring some clarity to the topic. But before I do that, I want to open with a quote from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And I just think it ties in really well today with understanding God's anger and wrath. And it reads like this. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness 
grinds he all. There is a time when God's patience runs out. He is incredibly patient and amazingly merciful. But there comes a time when God's had enough. And that is the message of the prophets, and it is the message here in Revelation as well. And we have to be careful because we make the mistake today in thinking that God will never get angry or that God will never punish or never destroy or send someone to hell or even wipe out a nation. However, we see in Revelation that he will, and he does. Like that quote I just read, he may be slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he will never get angry. In fact, when you study God's anger, you realize that just as you and I have different ways of expressing ourselves through anger, so too does God. And in many places in scripture, his anger almost is descriptive like a pot of water that is heating up upon the stove. It's simmering and it sits there simmering for quite a long time until suddenly it boils over. Does that sound familiar for any of you? Is that a pattern for some of you? Some of us let our anger simmer for quite a while until one day we too have had enough and our anger boils over into an action of some kind. Well, scripture describes God's anger much the same way, only he is much more patient than we are. His anger can simmer for a very long time before he acts on it. And when you study your Bible, you discover that the word most often used for anger is the word wrath. And many of us, man, we have a hard time with that word because when we read it initially in the Bible, we immediately picture God going on some type of an anger spree, destroying things. And we wonder where his mercy is, which is why many of us have a hard time reading the Old Testament because sadly, many preachers have given an unfair representation of God in the Old Testament, describing him as an angry God while Jesus is loving. But we forget, of course, that Jesus says, I and my father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. So we need to be very, very careful thinking one is angry and one is loving. They are one and the same. But it is also why people struggle with revelation because of God, because of how God destroys the earth and the people in it, or how he allows his own people to suffer, or how he allows the satanic system to rule and reign for a period of time. And we say to ourselves, how could a loving God do that? Why would a loving God do that, right? So let's just try to understand this better. Now, when you study the word wrath in the Hebrew and Greek, you find that it describes different types or expressions of anger not just one reaction that results in immediate destruction. And some of it is what God felt towards people or nations, or like I mentioned a minute ago, is really not that much different than how some of us express our anger today. Now, let me give you a few examples of how this word wrath is used in the Bible, and then just see if you can relate to any of this. First of all, there's wrath or anger in the Bible that is an outburst. It's an outburst of passion. It's a passionate response. Well, who hasn't had that, right? Then there's a wrath or anger in the Bible that is provoking. It's when someone is vexed 
It's when someone keeps being provoked and provoked and provoked, right? That's an anger that's building. Then there's a wrath or anger that's associated actually with the face, with the nostrils in particular. Like when we breathe rapid breathing, it's a change in the countenance of God or the person. And for God, when this is a word used in relation to his anger, it's when something is evil in his sight. It's a that type of thing, right? It's a, it's a change of countenance. Then there's a burning anger, a fierce wrath. And this appeared first in Exodus 32, 12, when Moses was trying to prevent God from destroying the people he just delivered from Egypt. Remember when they built the golden calf? God was going to destroy them. He was burning. He was hot with anger. And Moses said, turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Moses stood in the gap and spared the people. Then there's anger that's like a splinter. It's an indignation. You're sore about something. Well, God felt this towards Judah and Jerusalem. Sometimes they felt like a thorn in his side, right? Second Chronicles 29.8. Then there's a wrath that's like a rage, a fury. I hope that's none of you out there, but it people do have a problem with this. It's a strong emotional state and it results in a strong reaction. And this type of wrath is used a lot in the Bible, especially in the poetic and prophetic writings. Ezekiel, for example. Then there's a wrath that is only mentioned one time in the Bible, and it's in the prophetic book of Habakkuk. And this is the one that gets me in trouble. It's out of Habakkuk 3.2, where it says, in wrath, remember mercy. Well, this is a verse I pray often, but I've also prayed it in prayer meetings. And when I have, I have been met with a lot of misunderstanding from people. They assume I mean one thing when this verse actually means another. See, in this wrath, it speaks of a commotion, of restlessness. Picture like a horse who is restless in a stall. This is a disquieted or displaced anger. It's troublesome. And what was happening was Habakkuk, the prophet, he was calling out to God to, quote, revive your work in the midst of the years, end quote, because things all around were growing corrupt, evil, and troubling. And what it appeared is that God was trying to get the attention of the people by showing them how bad things were getting because they left him. And so things were bad spiritually, they were bad morally, they were bad politically. And Habakkuk, he recognized the trouble as a warning. It was a, a redirected anger. It wasn't necessarily happening to him personally, but it was happening all around. And he cried out for mercy in this trouble, in this wrath. Remember mercy. Well, friends, look around today. There is commotion restlessness and trouble all around us, spiritually, morally, politically, socially. Is God showing us plainly that we've gone too far as a people? Is he allowing these things to take place all around us in an effort to get us to turn back to him, to show us how bad it can really get? Do we recognize it as a form of God's anger? Lord, in wrath, remember your mercy. 
Because a few verses later in verse 8 of the same chapter of Habakkuk, the word wrath is used again, only this time to describe the anger of the sea. It's raging. It's furious. So you see how careful we have to be. Then there is another wrath. And this one starts in the mind but gives way to action. It is fierce. It is a hot, passionate anger, an incipient displeasure that ferments in the mind. You can almost see God tapping his fingers, shaking his head. It's something that's building up. It's simmering like that pot. And when that anger finally subsides, it gives way to another form of wrath, one that longs for revenge. It's that pot boiling over. It's a wrath that means reaching out or reaching forth. There's an action to it, and it's justifiable. And this wrath is found in both the Old and the New Testaments. And in the New Testament, you can find it, of course, in Revelation, but it's in Romans. There's Galatians, Hebrews, Colossians, Thessalonians, Luke, Matthew. So this just gives you an idea that when we read or hear the word wrath as it relates to Scripture, make sure you understand which wrath is being taught. But the point is, if our eyes are open, friends, we'll see it. We'll see the trouble. We'll see the commotion like Habakkuk. We'll see God's anger simmering. And maybe we'll cry out in that wrath, Lord, remember mercy. Have mercy. Right now, that, it, that anger, it's simmering over America right now, plain as day. It's simmering over many nations. The question is, when will it boil over? See, in people who don't really know God or want to know God or want to have anything to do with God, people who don't think, who will, people just aren't in that, they don't think that rebellion or ungodly and more immoral living will offend God. They don't think it'll have any effect. So they don't, they don't notice his activity on the earth. They don't notice his anger, how it's simmering. All they notice is that when events reach a threshold, when the boiling over starts to cause chaos, that's what they notice. And what do we do? When a pot's boiling over, well, we run to the kitchen. We try to clean things up and stop a fire. Well, isn't that what we're doing today? Most people, everyone's running around trying to put out all these fires, but no one's really addressing the real problem. We're treating the symptoms, not the root. And the root is that we've left God and we've replaced him with all kinds of abominable, unholy things. We've kicked him out of everyday life, like our schools, like our government, like places of employment, like health care, like family, right? And so all we notice now is the chaos, not necessarily that he's trying to get our attention. But when he is centric to your life, you are watching these things and you can see the signs and you step in with prayer, with fasting, with community involvement, with volunteering somewhere at school, anything to bring the presence and favor of God to those environments and situations, right? We are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, what happens? It's trampled underfoot by men. Well, what's happened? We've been trampled underfoot by men. Because the danger we face, friends, is that once aroused, you cannot turn God's wrath away. Once you reach that point of boiling over, frequently called in the Bible the day of his wrath, nothing can turn it away then. 
But while his wrath is simmering in this present age, it can be turned away. But when it boils over, nothing can stop it. And for different nations and different individuals, it has boiled over at times. And for the whole world, there is a day of wrath coming when people would rather be swallowed in an earthquake than look at the anger on the face of God and his son, Jesus. That's from Revelation 6. And that's the wrath we read about in Revelation. Because it's now past the point of simmering. It's now boiling over. He has been patient. He has been long-suffering. He has been merciful, desiring that no one should perish, but all should come to repentance. But now time has run out. Now, it bears mentioning that cups are typically mentioned throughout scriptures as it pertains to God's wrath, with the common thread that he makes nations drink this cup in order to pour out his anger upon them. So I, I really want to go through a couple verses on the cups of wrath because it brings us to Jesus. First of all, in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 16, it says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Well, now this is a perfect example of moving from simmering to boiling over. You know, Jeremiah was a prophet for about 40 years. Talk about God remaining patient and things simmering. He's preaching repent and return, repent and return. He's given strong messages. They didn't listen. They were haughty. They were prideful. They stayed in their rebellion. They remained in their paganism. They kept sacrificing their children. Well, guess what? The pot boiled over, and he used King Nebuchadnezzar as his own instrument of judgment against him. Many were killed. Some went into captivity. The temple was destroyed. How about Isaiah 51? Isaiah looks beyond Israel's punishment, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. So they've already drunk that, Isaiah 51, 17. But it promises to take, where God is promising to take away the cup of staggering and now give it to their tormentors, Isaiah 51, 22 to 23. And there's all kinds of mentions throughout the prophets of the cup of wrath. But this idea of this cup, it carries over into the New Testament also. Because after he's saying he's going to suffer when they get to Jerusalem, James and John requested to sit at Jesus' right and left, remember? But Jesus responds by asking if they can drink from his cup. Matthew 20, verses 22 to 23. The same idea appears in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, where he requested, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26, 39. Well, what cup is Jesus talking about? You see, the Apostle Paul, he warns that our sins, yours and mine, the world's, it brings about God's wrath. Romans 1.18, Romans 2.5, Colossians 3.6. But because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, those who follow him no longer have to drink it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3, 36. You see, the cup that Jesus was drinking was the cup of the wrath against sin. But this is the promise we have 
We are not under the wrath of God as a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ, but the rest of the world is. What Jesus did, friends, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he did on the cross, was he took all that wrath that was appointed against us, that was appointed against mankind for sin, and he waited till that cup was full, and he drank it. He drank the wrath of God. He became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we may have trouble in this world. We may be persecuted in this world. We may be martyred. But that doesn't mean that that's wrath upon us. That's what's called living a crucified life. After all, John was the only one of the 12 apostles left. The others had already suffered a martyr's death. Christian tradition records that Andrew, he died on an X-shaped cross. Bartholomew, who's Nathaniel, he was flayed alive in Armenia. James, the brother of John, was beheaded by Herod Agrippa in Jerusalem. James, son of Cleopas and Mary, he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and stoned. Jude, Thaddeus, he was shot with arrows in Armenia. Matthew was slain by the sword in Parthia. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Philip was hanged on a pillar in Aeropolis in Frisia. Simon was crucified in Persia. Thomas was slain with a spear in India. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. And let's not forget about Paul, who was also beheaded in Rome. So being loyal to to Jesus does not mean it's going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be quite the opposite. It's very costly. But we will be rewarded on the other side. And so thinking of all this wrath we've been talking about, consider Jesus, friends, what he experienced when he had to drink that cup of wrath for the punishment of sin for mankind in those hours preceding his death, feeling as though the Father had forsaken him. It had to be excruciating. When you consider the sins of murder in all of its forms, perversion in all of its forms, idolatry, child sacrifice, adultery, lies, greed, corruption, witchcraft, on and on. Imagine being bombarded with all of the sins of mankind. No wonder the sky grew dark. No wonder the earth shook and railed underneath him. No wonder the power of God tore the veil in two in the temple. And no wonder when that cup of wrath was done, he said, it is finished. It's finished. So whoever believes in the Son of God and has made him their Lord will not experience that wrath. But the earth, the nations will. And we don't know what it'll look like for believers if we're here and Jews on the earth if they're here during that time. Some will die. Others perhaps will be preserved and hidden away like God did with the Israelites out of Egypt. It's not clear. But with everyone else, they will experience not just a cup of the wrath of his anger this time. They will experience seven bowls of the wrath of his anger. And why is he angry with the nations? And why is the earth judged? Have you ever wondered that? All of creation. Because it's defiled. 
which means it's made unclean. It's impure. And when something is impure, it means it's been desecrated. And when it's been desecrated, it means it is a threat to and opposes holiness. And holiness is what God is after. If holiness is lacking in your land, if holiness is lacking in your church, you may want to ask the Lord if or where it's been defiled. But how does it get defiled? Well, there are several places in Scripture that reveal this, and I'm just going to mention three. One is Leviticus 18, another is Numbers 35, and then another is Psalm 106. Now, Leviticus 18 has to do mainly with sexual sins, while the other two address mainly the defilement that comes from the shedding of innocent blood. In Leviticus, for example, which I'll show you in a minute, God makes it very clear that he doesn't want his people doing what the Egyptians nor the people of Canaan practiced in regards to sexual morality. If his people were to follow him, they had to follow his ordinances and his judgments, and judgments here means judicial decisions in this case. Israel would have to learn how to live rightly and steer clear of the danger of the other nations. If they didn't, their nation and the land he was giving them would be defiled, bringing upon them his anger and judgment. That's what defilement does. When the land or nation is defiled, it ignites his anger. Well, this is still true for us today. We are called to follow me, Jesus said, right? And when we do that and we pick up our cross and we follow him, then we learn to live rightly. You see, God was calling his people out of slavery and commanding them to be a holy people, set apart to himself. To do that, they couldn't adopt pagan practices of the neighboring nations. And as you'll see, those things that defile the land, they're rooted in paganism. They're anti-God, anti-Christ. We are in an anti-Christ system right now. Well, what's on the rise around the world again, friends? Paganism. All of these gods and goddesses, modern-day witchcraft, the occult, it's all skyrocketing all around us, and it's rooted in this paganism. No wonder we have confusion and the problems that we do. So let's go through these first two on the blood. Numbers 35, verses 33 to 34. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it except the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel." Well, friends, if we want God to dwell in our land like he did with the children of Israel, we need to start praying for cleansing in our lands because a lot of blood has been shed. Psalm 106, 37 to 38 says, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Let me ask you a serious question. You know, on what altar are we sacrificing our children today? 
our sons and our daughters. I have never known a time in my life where children have been such a target today. And then Leviticus 18 addresses sexual morality and a couple other things. And it doesn't mince its words. And these things many nations and people are still struggling today with today. But as we go through them, these things, as you hear them, they defile the land. First, it lists incest. Well, now, did you know that most sexual assaults occur within the home? We have a problem with incest even today in, modern, in the modern world. Bestiality is mentioned. Did you know that with the increase of paganism and modern witchcraft and all these other evil things, bestiality is on the rise? Child sacrifice in any form. In this case, in Leviticus 18, it was when they sacrificed their children to the god Moloch. Profaning God's name. Sporting events. Gosh, all you got to do is turn on the TV and you hear, you hear the name of Jesus profaned. And can I ask, why is it always Jesus that's the curse name? right? Why is it always his name that's cursed? Why doesn't anybody ever use the name Buddha or Allah, right? Why is it always Jesus whose name is profaned? Homosexuality is listed in this passage of scripture. Homosexuality is actually listed in several Old Testament passages. It's also mentioned in Romans chapter 1. I encourage you to read Romans chapter 1. What about being with a woman when she's in her impurity each month? That defiles the land also. Now, before you say, well, Carol, this is all Old Testament. May I mention that the New Testament is mostly written with references to the Old Testament passages. And may I also mention that the book of Revelation has about 400 references to the Old Testament. And Revelation is the letter of Jesus. You know, friends, we, we may have our opinions on all these things, on all the different things that we think defile or don't defile the land. But guess what? Heaven's not going to be ruled by yours or my opinions. Revelation shows us that. Heaven is ruled by God's Son and His Word. And we're called ambassadors for Christ in Scripture. And it says you are called an ambassador for Christ as if God is speaking through you. Therefore, that means when you and I go out into the world, we don't speak on our own opinion. We speak as an ambassador for his kingdom, an ambassador that upholds his word. And I tell you right now, the church is walking a dangerous, slippery slope by not doing that, by embracing the mixture. But I'm telling you, if God says it in his word, well, then there you have it, whether we like it or not. These are the things that defile the land. And if you were to be really honest with yourself and me with myself, and we took a step back and really looked around at all the problems that we're facing in culture, it all points back to that, doesn't it? In Leviticus 18, he says, Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Therefore, I will visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. And guess what? The land will vomit out its inhabitants. God's not afraid to spit out a nation. In fact, he actually mentions vomiting out inhabitants several more times in the passage. Look, I'm just trying to get us to wake up and pay attention. What is taking place in your country? What is taking place in your land? 
Can we not see the defilement? Look at the trends of culture, the sexual immorality today. What do you think? Is God's anger simmering? Is he trying to get our attention with all the trouble rising up around us like Habakkuk? We've got mental health crises, drug crises, identity crises. We've got droughts, fires, floods in greater intensity and frequency. These things are not just the result of bad policies or nature. There's a deeper problem going on, a spiritual problem. We have a spiritual problem in America for sure. It appears God is removing his blessing. His anger is simmering. And many either can't see it or refuse to see it because they're caught up on a false gospel that won't allow them to see God's anger. And so what's happening is we're, we, we turn around and what we end up doing is we fight the system or we're fighting each other, completely oblivious to the fact that we need to repent and return to him. There's still time for mercy while his anger is holding. That's why we pray 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and what? Heal their land. This isn't just an Old Testament passage for Israel. We are that wild olive tree grafted into Israel. Paul calls us now the commonwealth of Israel. We are one new man, right? This applies to us as well. He goes on in that chapter to say, Therefore, you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, that you don't defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 18, 24 to 27. See, friends, when we keep the ways of God, the commands of God, when we keep his ordinance, when we keep his word, We don't fall into these traps. We don't commit these abominable customs. But when we don't listen to his word, when we don't believe his word, when we don't follow his word, it's a complete snare to us. Next thing you know, we'll offer our children to demons, like it said in Psalm 106. And then it says immediately after that in the next sentence in Leviticus 19, which we miss because of the chapter break, God says, Speak to speak this to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say, Be holy, for I am holy, for I, Lord God, am holy. So he goes through the whole chapter on everything that defiles and then urges them to be holy. And Peter actually reiterates those exact words in 1 Peter when he says, Do not conform yourselves to your former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Revere God. Don't fall into that wide path of destruction. Don't follow what everybody else is doing. Stay on the narrow path. Quit mixing with the world. Why? Because we're his people. We're holy. We're set apart. We are now bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the one who drank that whole cup of wrath for us. The highest possible payment anybody could ever offer. The currency for atonement, the currency of heaven. He bought you. He bought me. That's why he calls us now his possession. That's why he is called our Lord. Did you know that? You know, in Romans, when it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, right? Then you will be saved. 
Well, you know what it means to make Jesus your Lord? It means you surrender. It means you come up under him, under his lordship. He now owns you. You're his possession. He now rules over you. You don't rule yourself. You don't, your body's not your own. You are not your own. That phrase, my body, my choice, what a lie. Because when he bought you with his blood, when he became your Lord, you were no longer your own, you're his, and you come up under his rulership. So there is a lie fed to the world about my body, my choice. If you're a Christian and you're believing that, I'm going to be as a friend. I'm telling you the truth. It's a lie. You are the possession of the most high God. He is your Lord. He's holy and he ain't messing around. That's why as the bowls are about to be poured out, no one can enter the temple. He's holy. The bulls are tipping out over to rid the world of the gross sin, the abominations of sexual perversion, bloodshed, and everything in between. That's why the glory cloud has filled the temple. God's anger has simmered long enough. Look around you, friends. Look at our world. What have we done, every generation, and for what purpose? And so the pot is boiling over at this point. The bulls are being poured out. The land will be destroyed. But it's going to get recreated, as you'll see in a future chapter. And it's going to be pure. It's going to be beautiful. And it's not going to be touched by any of these foul things ever again. So Revelation up to this point, it has shown how merciful God has been in the midst of people who refuse to change their ways and come back to him, choosing to stay in their rebellion. That's how people are even today. He has sent his signs and his warnings. He has sent the seals and the trumpets. He sent wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, false prophets, the falling away, signs in the sky. He has sent judgments through natural disasters. He has sent the demonic beings from the bottomless pit to afflict people, and people still wouldn't cry out to him. He sent his messengers through the two witnesses, preaching boldly and doing signs and wonders for three and a half years. He marked 144,000 Jewish men to go out and represent him. He even sent an angel with the everlasting gospel. So don't say God is some meanie or some baddie or he's angry or he is unjust. He is merciful. So the first bull, first angel comes and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. There will be some kind of an affliction on the skin in this bowl, similar to the affliction the Egyptians faced in the sixth plague of Egypt where they faced boils. God's power could not be denied then, nor will it be denied here. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Well, just as the second trumpet impacted a third of the sea, this bull affects the sea also, only it brings about the death of every living creature. Imagine that. Imagine everything floating on the water, washing up on the shores. Imagine the stench. Then the third angel poured out his bull on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard an angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another angel, another 
And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. There will be no longer be a clean water source at this point, unless God himself miraculously provides it somehow, as he did for the Israelites in the desert through a rock. Think about that. For all the blood that has been shed against the innocents over the generations, the wars, the martyrdom, abortions, child sacrifices, the unrighteous people left in the world will have nothing else to drink but blood themselves as their just due, just like all the waters in Egypt turned to blood. That's incredible. Blood speaks, my friends, just like the blood of Abel that cried out from the ground in Genesis. Don't think innocent blood isn't crying out right now from the ground. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The sun is going to get too hot, and it's going to scorch people. We already see this activity with the sun now with flares and so much going on, and we see creation groaning. But I also find it fascinating that even under the great heat, men still didn't repent. And it reminds us again of Egypt, how Pharaoh hardened his heart. And, the, and they did not repent until the tail end, and then they sent the people away. You know, Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times before God hardened it. Did you know that? So seven is the number of perfection and completion. So after seven, you know, God's like, okay, great. You've hardened it seven times. I'm going to go ahead and harden it the next three. And that's what he did. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. There you go again. They still did not repent of their deeds. Now that word darkness here is means full darkness, to obscure, to blind. Think of Pharaoh again, the one who thought he was God, right? God brought utter darkness to the land of Egypt, complete blindness. You couldn't even see your hand in front of you. That type of darkness. I'm sure some of us have been in that before. I know I have in underground cave excursions, wearing helmets and headlamps. And for a moment, you click the headlamp off and you literally cannot see a stitch of anything. It's quite frightening. Well, this satanic system, much like Pharaoh's satanic system, this beast, Satan, and who strives to be like God, like Pharaoh thought he was, will experience blinding darkness, so dark that they gnaw their tongues. Oof. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth, of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. This is interesting, too. He says, I'm coming as a thief. <laughs> Even after all these signs, he's coming as a thief. Well, now in this passage, preparations are now underway for the Battle of Armageddon. 
or also called Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. That's where this battle will take place. It's a true place in Israel. God even dried up the waterways so the armies can get through. In other words, God is picking this fight. He's drawing all the army, all the enemy armies into his territory, into Israel. If you've never been to Israel, when you do go one day, you can visit the ruins of Megiddo. And it's known as the crossroads of the world because Israel was sandwiched between all the major empires of the time. And stretching out before it is the Valley of Jezreel, where King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had their palace. I encourage you, if you have time, listen to our podcast on Why Israel Part 1. We discuss Israel's location, but also the significance of Megiddo. It's quite fascinating. Now, this is the first time Armageddon is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And to prepare for this battle, the enemy is at work in the atmospheres because they are being energized by the spirits of demons, possessing the kings of the earth and the whole world to think they are making war against God. (laughs) But yet God's the one drawing them in. But also note the blessing God gives to those who are watching these events unfold. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. In other words, keep yourselves pure in the midst of all the evil lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And this is a direct reference to Revelation 3, when he said the same thing to the lukewarm church who thought they were rich, but couldn't even see they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he counseled them to buy white garments, white garments so that the shame of their nakedness wouldn't be revealed. Do you remember that? It's the same reference to that. Friends, keep yourselves pure. Keep yourselves holy for the Lord. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. It is done. What does that remind you of? It is finished. Jesus' work was finished on the earth when he drank that cup of wrath. He conquered sin, death, and the grave. He became the door, the way for mankind to be reconciled to the Father and to live with him forever, should they make that choice. But now his work from heaven is is all now done. Everything God entrusted Jesus to do to close out the end of the age has been accomplished in perfect order and perfect completion. It is finished in one way. It is done in the other. And notice when it was done, how the earthquakes, the thunderings, and the lightnings came. 
similar to when Jesus died, when it was finished, the sky turned dark, there was thundering, there was earthquakes, right? It's the same Jesus, friends. This time only the earthquake appears to be global, with hail falling, the weight equivalent to 75 pounds. I just read an article from August 5th, 2022, that Canada set the new record for the largest hailstone. And it was only the size of like a grapefruit. Maybe a pound, not quite though. This hail will be 75 pounds. Wow. The pot has boiled over. But friends, in Jesus, we have nothing to fear. You know, at church today, I was reminded of that when I listened to the lyrics of a song called Honey in the Rock. I just want to read you a few uh, a few sentences from this song. There's honey in the rock, water in the stone, manna on the ground, no matter where I go. I don't need to worry now that I know. Everything I need you've got, there's honey in the rock. Well, I hope today's episode was helpful in your study of Revelation. Tune in next time when we begin our understanding of Mystery Babylon. Until next time, God bless you. Thank you.